Well, we've been in this series, Do You Believe What You Believe You Believe? Do you believe what you believe you believe? As we think about that, what we've been doing in the series is talking about looking at the foundations of our belief, the foundational truths that, 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 that are key to what we believe. And so these core uh, beliefs, like, does God exist? Is there a God? Is there, is there, are there proofs? Are there some apologetic reasons that we can believe in the existence of our creator God? Last week we looked at God's word. Is it uh, reliable? Is it authoritative? Can we put our faith in it? Can we trust God's word? What do we believe about the word of God? Can it make us wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ? And we would give a resounding, absolutely it can. We learned that last week. We can put our faith in God's word. What we talk about this ser- in this series, and what we'll talk about today, uh, really you could describe, especially today, that, that, that the belief that we're going to talk about is the linchpin of our faith. Now, a linchpin is that piece on an axle, when you put the wheel on, then in some settings, the linchpin is that pin that goes on the end of the axle that keeps the wheel on the axle. And that's probably a pretty important thing, that the wheel stays on the axle, depending on uh, what it is that's, uh, that's turning there. But that is the linchpin. That's what a linchpin does. The linchpin is that, that small part that's critical to the larger whole. Think about court TV. Think about some show where there's some, some, some maybe a murder case or whatever, and you're in that court of law, and we've probably all watched enough TV to, to know that a lot of times there's that, that, that smoking gun moment, that piece of evidence that's the linchpin for the entire case. Again, that smoking gun, the weapon is found, some credible witness that saw what happened. Maybe it's a video that, that again, you can see what actually happened and who committed the murder. Even maybe a glove used in the murder that the prosecution asked the, the person that's, uh, that's accused of the murder to, to put on. Some of you might remember that moment, that moment if you're old enough the, in the O.J. Simpson trial when the prosecution asked O.J. Simpson to put on the glove that had been identified as the glove that was uh, used in the commission of the murder. And as he stood before the jury, as you, if you recall that moment, that glove didn't quite fit. And if you remember what Johnny Cochran said as he was addressing the jury, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Legal scholars would later say that that moment was the linchpin of the trial. And O.J. Simpson was indeed acquitted. So today we want to talk about the linchpin of our faith. We want to talk about the smoking gun, the eyewitness account, the video that shows without a shadow of a doubt, the piece of the argument that everything else hangs on, and it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Each week I've tried to uh, give you some resources that could let you have some further study. I want to do that again today. I, last week I mentioned Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Great book. We're going to use some of uh, Lee's thoughts as we talk today. Another great book, uh, Gary Habermas, probably the uh, foremost scholar on the resurrection, wrote a uh, fairly new book called The Body of Proof. That's another uh, good one. And you can look up either of those uh, names and you can see some, some great uh, YouTube videos on apologetics and some of the things we've been talking about. 
uh, lectures and different things that they have recorded. Uh, and then, of course, the, the book that I've referred to uh, each week. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Another great book that we're going to borrow a little bit from at the end uh, today as well. So I just encourage you to, as you want to learn a little more, you could use those resources. So let's jump in. The linchpin of our faith. The linchpin, the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to these words. The Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth. And this is what he says about the linchpin. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance, and I also received that Christ, that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared, appeared to James, that was the brother of Jesus, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, there's a couple of things I want, to, want you to make sure that you catch that Paul is saying here. In verse 3, he mentioned that he's sharing something that he received. He's sharing information that he's got and he wants to share with them. And then he says how important it is. He says this is of first importance. This is critical. He's talking to them, but he's also talking to us. It's critical that you understand what I'm saying to you. This is the linchpin. Pay attention to what I'm saying. And he recites to them. Not in his words, it, it, it changes the, the way it's framed in the original language is a little different. So you can tell it's not necessarily his words, but he's giving something that he's heard someone else say. And so he gives what has been called the first creed of the church. A creed is a statement of belief. And here's what he says. In verse 3, Christ, here's the creed. Christ died in fulfillment of the scripture. He was buried and then he was raised on the third day again in fulfillment of the scripture. And so that's that early creed, that statement of belief, what we believe about Jesus, that he died, buried, and rose again. Now, he then goes on to list a number of people that saw Jesus, that, that, are, that are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And he lists those people, people that, and if you want to go talk to them, a lot of them are still alive, go talk to them. If you don't believe me, go talk to them. First Corinthians, this book was written, this letter was written, just scholars tell us, 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus, written around 54 AD. And there's a lot of reasons for that. We don't have time to go into that of why we can say unequivocally that that's about the time it was written. And so, in other words, I tell you that to say there are, there's plenty, still plenty of people that were still around, just like Paul alludes to, that you could have gone and talked to. That's why he's saying, here's some eyewitnesses, go talk to them if you don't believe me. They could verify that Jesus is risen. And then you skip down a few verses, and Paul really puts it on the bottom, puts, in the book, put the cookies, puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. And he talks about the linchpin of the resurrection when he says this in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. What we believe about the resurrection matters. What we believe about the resurrection, that the resurrection is an actual bodily resurrection. That matters. Not some spiritual appear in dreams and vision type of moment that, or some, some mass hallucination. No, what we believe about Jesus and that he conquered death, that he was buried in a tomb and that he rose three days later, that matters. That fact from history matters. That fact impacts our now and it impacts our eternity. What we believe about the resurrection matters. 
Let's go to one of those key appearances of Jesus after the resurrection to his disciples in John chapter 20. John records this. It says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So this is after he had risen, and so he'd already appeared to the disciples once, but Thomas wasn't there. I don't know. His Google Calendar got messed up. He, his assistant didn't get it quite in there, entered just right. He, he thought it was a different day, messed up the timing. He thought it was, uh, you know, Easter, and he was on Central. I don't know what happened, but he wasn't there when, the, when he first appeared. And he says this. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Some of us are kind of like Thomas. We need to see for ourselves. We need to experience it for ourselves. Eight days later, Verse 26 says the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with, was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. You see, Thomas had said he needed, this, he needed the evidence, and Jesus was glad, happy to oblige. He doesn't get on to Thomas, but he peers, and then he says to Thomas, Put your finger here and, put my, and see my hands, and put your, out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And at that invitation for Thomas to experience the risen Jesus, Thomas answered and affirms his faith when he says, my God and my Lord. Jesus invites us to examine the evidence. He invites us like he did Thomas. It's okay that you might struggle a little bit with belief. It's all right. It's okay. And so we're going to look at the evidence today and my invitation like Jesus' invitation would be for you as we conclude today that you would put your faith in Christ, that you would believe. That, and then for some of us that today as we, as we talk about this, what this is going to do is to help you get ready to share the hope that you have found in Christ, the hope that you have in the resurrection, maybe to be able to share that with someone else because of what we've talked about today. Verse 29 says, Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have not, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And he's talking about us. We believe even though we're not seen, although we will look at evidence just like Jesus gives Thomas. He leaves evidence for us so that we can put our faith in the resurrection. So let's say we're going to talk about four E's that help us, or five E's. Uh, Strobel talked about four E's. We're going to add another one where we're going to talk about some faith-expanding evidence for the resurrection. The first E is this. That Jesus was executed, his execution. In order to have a resurrection, you have to have a body. You have to have a dead body. And so is there evidence that Jesus lived? Is there evidence that he was executed by crucifixion, like Scripture described? Is there evidence? Do we have a body? Scholars, Christian and non-Christian, Christian and secular alike, believe that, uh, all, all of them, believe that Jesus lived in the first century. Now, there may be some off-the-reservation, you know, historian or whatever, but, but respected scholars across the board believe that Jesus lived in the first century. And you may not believe, even you might hear today, and you might not believe that as we talked, even though we talked about it last week, you may not believe that the Scripture is the inspired Word of God, but you have to at least understand and believe that the Bible, what we have recorded in the New Testament, is, is a historical document from that first century. And that historical document, you have to at least give it that, 
in it is described Jesus as living and Jesus dying by crucifixion, again, in that first century. All four Gospels record that. Others uh, of the letters refer to it later. But in addition to Scripture, we have other independent sources, early sources from that same period. Even non-Christian sources that would even, you could even describe as enemies of Jesus and the faith that affirm that Jesus lived and died in the first century. Because, again, if you're going to have a resurrection, you've got to start with a body. Is there a body? Was there an execution? Josephus, first century Jewish historian, wrote this. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused, talking about Jesus, by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified. Independent Jewish historian from that time period. Tacitus, a Roman senator and historian, also talked about Jesus suffering the most extreme penalties. Talking about crucifixion. At the hands of Pilate. And we don't have time to hear them and to read all of them, but we've got other uh, outside the Bible uh, that, that confirm it. You've got Lucian, a Syrian satirist who, who ridiculed religion. You've got Marabar Seferian, a Stoic philosopher, the same thing. The Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish uh, rabbis and their writings, all of them in that period affirm that Jesus lived and was buried, he was crucified. They affirm that. John Crossman, a critical scholar of the Jesus Seminar, sums it up this way when he said that he, Jesus, was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Jesus was executed. First E. The second E, as we have some faith-expanding evidence for the resurrection, are the early accounts. This first Peter, our first Corinthians passage that we read here in first Corinthians chapter 15 this early creed about what happened to Jesus, that he was buried, he died, he was buried, he rose from the dead. That creed is dated between three and eight years after the resurrection. So in that extremely short amount of time, and Dr. Habermas, again, I, Habermas, I shared, he's the foremost scholar on the resurrection. He wrote a book, seminal work, entitled The Historical Jesus, Ancient Evidence for the Life of Christ, and he just has a variety of reasons why scholars across the board have come to the conclusion uh, that these early accounts uh, just attest to, to uh, what we're talking about. And one of these early accounts is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where just a few years after Jesus rises from the dead, the church is already talking about it. It's already in print just a few years after the fact. So this is huge because it, it hasn't given enough time for there to be a legend about Jesus. Now, some would say, oh, well, or we would think before we look at the evidence, well, that was probably written, what, what we see in Scripture was probably written hundreds, or hundreds, of year, hundreds of years after the fact, and they go back and they're embellishing. This is all legend and fable and myth about Jesus. Except when you look at the actual evidence, it was written three to eight years after. Not enough time for legend to develop. Think about Think about King Arthur. King Arthur lived, scholars believe, historians believe, about 500 A.D. in Britain. It wasn't until about 300 years later that you first see the appearance of anybody writing about King Arthur. And then about, 950, 900 and, uh, about 950, Merlin is introduced, about 400, or 650 years after the fact. Merlin is introduced in the story. And then about 1100, you have the other pieces of the story of King Arthur. So we see this legend develops after all of these centuries. Three to eight years is enough time for the legend to develop. 
A.N. Sherman White, the respected Greco-Roman classical historian from Oxford University, said this, It would have been without precedent anywhere in history for a legend to have grown up that fast and that would have significantly distorted uh, what actually happened. And then don't forget that when the disciples start going around talking about what happened, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they don't go to some far-off city away from where it actually happened. They don't go to Rome or they don't go to Ephesus. They don't go to Corinth. They go to the epicenter of where it happened. They go to Jerusalem and stand up in front of everybody and say, this is what happened to Jesus. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus to the place where right outside the walls of the city is where Jesus is buried. The place where all of the the eyewitnesses were and no one is standing up saying, no, it didn't happen that way. We have evidence of Jesus' execution. We have evidence for early dating of the description of the story written just a few years after after it happened. And then the 30, we have the empty tomb. If you're going to have a resurrection, you you need a body. In this case, you need an empty tomb. The followers of Jesus were, as I said, they were the they were, the, they were the enemies of, the, of, of a lot of people in that first century. They were the enemies of the two great powers of the, of the, of the day, the Jewish religion uh, of that, of that, you know, that was in control. We have the, the Roman Empire. Jerusalem was the center of those things, the center of the overwhelming military might of Rome. And both of these groups, the the Jewish religion and the Roman Empire, wanted Christianity, the following of Christ, the followers of Christ, this sect that they looked at it, they wanted it to disintegrate. And if there was still a Jesus in a tomb somewhere, all they would have to have done was to have taken his body out and displayed his body so they would stop talking about this resurrected Jesus. They could have destroyed Christianity before it began, really. But there wasn't a body. The tomb was empty. And instead of making a display of the body of Jesus, what they do is they try to make an excuse for the empty tomb. We see it in Matthew 28, verses 12 and 13. It says, And when they had assembled with the elders, this is the Jewish hierarchy, and taken counsel, they gave a significant sum of money to the soldiers, the soldiers that had guarded the tomb, and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole away, stole him away while we were asleep. So the enemies of Jesus in a backhanded way, when they say, here, make up this story to, uh, they're making up a story to explain the empty tomb. And what that does is it verifies that the tomb was indeed empty. The eyewitnesses, the ones that were there, they're they're telling them to make up a story. And so when we, we think about, we think about that you know what what happened there and we think about them making up this story but we also have the we also have the women who go to the the, the scripture records the the disciples record uh, the women go to the the tomb there's this piece of evidence that they find this empty tomb the women being the first ones to go to the tomb uh, if if you were making up a story and and supposedly the, the disciples, the, the authors of the gospels were making up the story for they're making up the story you certainly wouldn't use women as your key is your key evidence for the empty tomb. Women in that first century, they couldn't even, in a Jewish court, they couldn't testify. Their, their testimony was null and void. They weren't credible witnesses, in other words. That was what their culture said. 
And the disciples were going to make up a story. Again, they wouldn't have women at the key, key moment testifying to the empty tomb. I mean, imagine the disciples sitting around concocting the story. What would they say? Okay, let's, let's, let's say it went down like this. Peter, Peter and John, we go to the tomb. Our swords are drawn. The Roman soldiers are there. We have this big battle. We, we vanquish them. And then with superhuman strength, we roll the stone away. And they're sitting inside the tomb, uh, having risen from the dead. So appreciative that we come to rescue him is Jesus. <laughs> but that's not how it went down. And so instead they say what actually happened the women went to the tomb. The women saw it empty because that's what actually happened. Oxford historian William Wan said this, all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb and those scholars who reject it ought to recognize that they do so on some other ground than that of scientific history. The fourth piece of evidence is the eyewitnesses. The fourth E the five, if you do the math, there are over 500 eyewitnesses. The disciples, of course, we, we see that in the, in the Gospels. They claim that they saw the resurrected Jesus. They, they give uh, that eyewitness account. But we have other uh, sources as well. We have Paul, who, who Jesus appears to on the road to Damascus. And then we have the early oral tradition of the, of the church, where we have these, these non-biblical writings of the early church fathers that confirm that what the disciples were saying. So they are saying, yes, they say that. They believed that. They believed in the resurrection. They saw it themselves. They affirmed those eyewitness accounts. Clement of Rome wrote a letter to the church at Corinth in AD 95. He said, therefore, having received orders and, com and complete certainty caused by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Clement is validating what the disciples claim. Irenaeus who writes of Polycarp, who lived during that same time period around 69 to 115 A.D. Polycarp was all who, this is what he wrote, but Polycarp also was not only instructed by the apostles and conversed with many of them who had seen Christ. He had seen Christ. And he talks about, they talk about martyrdom, the way the, 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 these early disciples were willing to die for their faith. We have uh, Irenaeus who talks about Polycarp, how he was trained up under John, the apostle John, and how he talks about that, that, that he was an eyewitness to the resurrection. In writing a letter, Polycarp, to the church, the Philippian church, he says, though they did not love the present age, but him who died for our benefit and for our sake was raised by Christ. And in that letter, five different times, Polycarp talks, who sat at the feet of the apostle John and just affirms the resurrection of Jesus. So you have, you have the apostles, you have their eyewitness account, and then you have these people that, that just back up that, yes, these apostles, these men believed it. Church history tells us that all of the disciples except John died for their faith. And it's been said before, you may die for something that you believe is true, that is actually false, but you don't go to your death willing to die for something that you made up, that you know is false. And so these eyewitnesses, every one of them willing to give their lives because they had experienced it. They knew it was true. We could quote more, but we need to 
move on. Let me give you real quick the final piece of evidence. And the final piece of evidence, we have the eyewitnesses, and then we have the exchange of doubts for faith. And I just love this idea that here, here, is, here, is, here is Paul who was an enemy of the faith. And he, he stood there while, I mean, he was a Pharisee. And he stood there while Stephen is martyred. He's killed for his faith. And he's giving consent there. But then when Paul is on the road to Damascus, on his way to persecute more Christians, he has this one-on-one experience with the risen Christ. And his life is forever changed. And we see him turning things totally around and joining this group that he was trying to destroy before. And what was the thing that made it happen? The linchpin of the resurrection. Seeing the resurrected Jesus. You have the, the brother of Jesus. We have in, in John 7, 5, talking about James, the brother of Jesus, describes him this way, for not even his brothers believed in them. But then you look at Acts 1, 14, after the resurrection, it says, and all these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women of Mary, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So there he is with the, with the other disciples. And we know, we know that James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And we have other historians of that era that talk about how James was martyred for his faith. And so what causes someone to go from, yeah, he's my brother. He's, 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 I don't believe that that's who he is. I don't believe that he's divine. I don't believe that he's the son of God. Till now he says unequivocally, yes. And what was the change? James, if you remember, was listed among those who had seen the risen Christ. It was the resurrection that changed everything. And what about, the, what about the other disciples, the ones that when Jesus was languishing on a cross, they were running away, they were afraid, they were skeptical. I don't know what's happened, but I thought he was Lord, but I guess he's not. And, and they were on the run. And then when they see the resurrected Jesus and experience the empowering of the Holy Spirit, game-changing. Because they were utterly convinced that they, like their master Jesus, would one day rise from the grave in glorified, resurrected bodies. So they were willing to face the tyrants with their brandished steel, the lion's gory mane, and the fires of a thousand deaths because they had seen the risen Christ. The disciples set their world on fire, empowered by the Holy Spirit, transformed by the knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that they had seen for themselves. I just want to share something that in this book, I don't have a faith to be an atheist, that he includes. It's from a, an excerpt from a sermon about our resurrected Jesus. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He, never, he, did, he did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies, and he went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property they had on earth. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 
And 20 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. And the linchpin of his life and of our faith, he, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. We invite our worship team to come back up. And if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what will you do in response to Jesus' invitation like he gave to Thomas when he invites him to look at the evidence and then to believe? We've looked at the evidence today. We could go on and on and on at the evidence for the resurrected Jesus. And so I would just invite you, like Thomas, to put your faith in a resurrected Jesus. A faith is, is Jesus to be your Savior, your Lord. I'm going to pray in just a moment and invite you to pray with me. But if Jesus is your Savior, if you have embraced Jesus as your Savior, then my question is, if you've put your faith in him, have you, like Paul and like James and Stephen and the other disciples who experienced the resurrected Jesus, have you allowed that experience to transform your life? Are you all in like they were? Or maybe today there's something that you need to confess before the Lord. Something that's gotten in the way of you being all in and serving your Savior. Like Paul and Peter and James and John. Like Stephen. So Heavenly Father, today as we sing this final song, I pray, Father, you'd help us to evaluate our own lives. God, is there anything that's kind of gotten in the way of us being all in? We see that it was the resurrection that was the culminating. It was the linchpin. It is the foundation of belief. And it was the thing that radically transformed their lives. And I pray today as we sing this final song that you, Father, would transform our lives. That you would help us to rid ourselves of anything that gets in the way. Anything that needs to be confessed that comes between us and giving ourselves all in like your early disciples did. God, that's what you need in this world us on fire for you. I pray, God, that you would do something in us as we confess to you. Father, I pray for that person that today, like Thomas, is making that decision after looking at the evidence, says, my Lord and my God, that makes that profession of faith today. God, I thank you for forgiving them. I thank you for setting them free from their sin and the things that are bound, have bound them up. And God, I thank you for giving them eternal life through Jesus. Thank you, Father. Now, as we sing this song, I pray that you would be here in our worship as we give ourselves to you as those early apostles did. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.